your first lemonade stand, you got an idea, took a risk, and a business was born. Maybe you can't get investment from mom and dad in the form of lemons anymore, but your entrepreneurial spirit is stronger than ever. You are listening to Behind the Stand. My name is Alice. I'm sitting down with the people behind Great Ventures to talk about their stories of grit, failure, and how they took lemons and turned them into successful lemonade stands. On today's show, we'll hear Jason Smith's story from quitting his corner office job to splurging on around the world tickets to fundraising over $19 million. Jason is no stranger to making big moves. A five-time serial entrepreneur, Jason started off by making double-digit millions when he and his co-founder sold the bootstrap venture to TELUS in their 20s. I'm curious, what kind of shoes are you wearing? Chances are, if they're not on your feet, you've got a pair of Nikes in your closet. Did you know Nike almost didn't exist? It wouldn't have if a 24-year-old Phil Knight made a different decision in the 60s. I've been reading Phil's biography, Shoe Dog, and I'm in awe that he never gave up on his dreams of making running shoes in an era when cars were honking at runners on the street, telling them to get a horse. Phil is a prime example of a shoe dog, someone who devotes their entire lives to making, designing, and buying shoes because that's his life's meaning and purpose. Although I'm not sure how many pairs of Nikes he has in his closet, Jason is a shoe dog. With technology instead of shoes, of course. Jason found his calling building technology companies when he graduated from UBC in the 90s, an era where neither entrepreneurship nor computers had anyone jumping out of their seats. In fact, his dad thought his son was going to waste his shiny business degree. But Jason chose his passion and purpose instead of a steady income. He used failures and successes as a stepping stone for his next move. He never gave up on finding that loose brick in the wall. He believes if you keep looking, you will find a problem you can solve. Timing, of course, is key. Despite his first successful exit, Jason's next startup never took off. He felt ashamed and disappointed but he posted it publicly. Now, he's a co-founder of the AI-powered competitive enablement company Clue that raised almost $20 million after their Series A round. Successful ventures, whether it's Nike or a startup, are built by real people who have weaknesses, insecurities, and tend to mess up just as often as they succeed. So you, yes you, the one listening. What are you waiting for? Just do it. I got the award from most unlikely to code for a living at Lakefield Computer Camp that I went to when I was a kid. Yeah, no, I grew up in Toronto and a kind of the outskirts of Toronto, normal kind of middle class um, upbringing was probably more on the sporty side than I was geeky. Always just interested in new stuff. So I was the kid that was the first to pick up snowboarding, the first to pick up wakeboarding, thought skateboarding was really cool. Anything that was fringe and kind of new or interesting is something that I was attracted to. I think that helped kind of set the stage for building a tech career. Did you play any Ultimate Frisbee? 
Yeah, yeah, I was a big Ulti fan too. That's true. And I don't know if we'll get to this, but I actually funded and then worked at a company that was in the ultimate Frisbee space, but was a big fan of Ulti. I wasn't very good at it, but I was a huge fan of it and loved to play it. I used to be an ultimate frisbee player as well. I always get mad at people who think that ultimate's not a sport. Like, what other <laughs> sport has ultimate in front of its name? You know it, what I've what I've always said when I talk about sales as something that people should give a lot more time to in the university years as a skill and even as a job consideration because everything is really sales. And I use the example of ultimate. Like, if you come across an ultimate frisbee player. They try to tell you how awesome Ultimate it is and how much you should play it. And they're, what are they doing? They're selling. And so if you're an ulti player, like, are you selling or are you just sharing your passion? I always think of sales the same way is like if you're passionate about something and you think there's that other person you're talking to is so going to benefit from actually doing what you're telling them to do, then are you selling or are you just sharing the passion for your sport? With Frisbee players who are so passionate, like you said, there's no other truth but ultimate. But in sales, kind of have to like, you know, lead the breadcrumbs a little bit. To be clear, I'm not saying that if you are selling ultimate, that you're a good salesperson. (laughs) I am saying that you are passionate though, and you are very happy to share your passion with somebody else. And I think the, the unfortunate branding of sales is that it's considered used car sales, selling stuff that people don't care about. And one of the biggest things that I think you can learn in life is actually how to sell and you know, focus on the things that you actually think will bring value to somebody. And then it's more like sharing your passion, kind of like what ultimate players do, ineffectively selling it, but absolutely sharing their passion. Got it. So your parents sent you to computer camp. What else do they encourage in you as you were growing up? So I was a big hockey player growing up. I learned how to skate when I was three and went through um, many, many, many years of hockey, like playing in the summers, all through um, the winters, playing rep hockey. And then when body checking came in, in, I forget what it was, 14, I was still tiny and there were dudes with beards and I definitely didn't have any facial hair at the time and I was still tiny and they were like real men and so I was getting clobbered. I gave up hockey completely. That was part of me looking at kind of what the new new thing is. I saw this thing called snowboarding and I thought that looked pretty cool and it was brand new. It was back when snowboards didn't have steel edges, like the first year it had steel edges. They weren't even allowed at resorts. So I picked up a snowboard and started to figure out how to do that and have been snowboarding for 30 years. Sounds like you're an adrenaline junkie. I do love sports that scare me. It's like when I think of entrepreneurial stuff, you have to go towards some of the fear because there's so many reasons not to start a company. There's so many reasons why your company is not going to work. And a lot of people will either tell you that flagrantly or kind of whisper it behind your back and you'll kind of sniff it. And I think you need to have a little bit of that. Well, I think I could find a way. There's a loose brick in that wall somewhere. I actually think there's probably a high correlation with people that are starting companies with trying new things that look risky to others. Um, And it could be coding on one end or it could be mountain biking on another, but they're all looking for kind of new and challenging things. So the next time when I want to go skydiving, I can just tell my mom, this is actually helping me become a better entrepreneur. 
You're working on it. You're going to become entrepreneurial the more you skydive. Yes. High correlation. <laughs> so I know your, your dad was a, a lawyer. Um, what did your mom do? And do you feel like you got some of the analytical capabilities from your mom and dad? Yeah. So my dad was one of those overeducated people that did, you know, as he did an undergrad in arts and then a master's of arts and then um, was starting into a PhD of philosophy, got a scholarship to Oxford, then came and did a law degree at Osgoode Hall. He was like one of those dudes that just kept doing a lot of school. Um, my mom was, uh, you know, grew up on the poor side of the tracks, had nothing couldn't afford to go to university, went to nursing school and switched over to become a flight attendant at Air Canada and then did um, kind of late stage education. So went back to school and graduated as opera class from U of T way back uh, later in life when she had two kids and was still working a full-time job as a flight attendant. So I think what I learned from my mom was just grit and resilience. She was one that there was just no job too small, no job too big, and she would just figure out a way to get through it. And uh, my dad probably maybe had more of the intellectual horsepower. Um, so between them, it was a good combo, I think. And they, um, yeah, they taught me the value, I think, of hard work and that you can find a way um, if you look hard enough and that you just got to keep looking. If you look back in your life now, what's the earliest memory of your first lemonade stand? Well, I was, uh, let's see, in elementary school, I was the kid that set up my own lawn cutting service and went door to door and knocked on doors to try and actually see if I could cut people's lawns. And, you know, no oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I did that. And then um, and I do remember getting ripped off badly by spending like four hours on somebody's lawn and gardening. And I think I got like $15 or something. And I asked for more and they said, no, you said $15 in the beginning. And then I I learned the lesson then of whatever you say in the beginning, no matter how many more hours you put in, you're going to get that. So, you know, say the right price in the beginning. That was the first one. But, you know, back to my mom helping me get to Vancouver with free flights. I used to go to West Beach, this store that sold kind of surf and skate clothing only available in Vancouver. I used to buy West Beach clothing and bring it back and sell it at my high school um, for a profit because <laughs> you couldn't get it in Toronto. Wow. While you were at university, what did you want to become? I loved marketing and advertising. I was a kid that would watch TV for the commercials more than the shows. And I was just amazed at like how Coke could do, you know, a polar bear commercials and make them interesting. And so I was super interested in advertising and it kind of combined with psychology. What makes people tick and then how can you speak to them? So that was, that was what I thought my pinnacle of my career would be. Um, advertising and marketing. So I also liked kind of design and was one of those kids that either was going to go into business or go to design school, art school. So ended up the business track and marketing was as close as you could get to design and advertising was as close as you could get to design probably in the marketing path. So I always thought it would be that. And when I graduated and we started my first company, it was a digital agency. And at the time, big agencies kind of ruled the world and there was the web was kind of a small thing. And I remember going to these big agencies saying, hey, there's this thing called the internet and you should have websites for all of your clients and we'll build them for you. And it was back in the early days of the web when 
you know, it was Netscape era, like, you know, a company that nobody ever heard of anymore, um, but very early days web. And that, uh, and those agencies just said, yeah, I don't think that's really where the money is. We're just going to skip that for now. So we started, we said, all right, well, we're not going through the agencies. We'll go direct to the brands and got a couple of brands to can let us build their website. And we were like 23 or 22 building websites for TELUS and Canucks and um, a bunch of others, West Coast Energy and Snapple and a whole bunch of other companies. And we're like, yeah, this business building thing is pretty easy. Look, we're just building websites and building this great company. And then you realize later that you got ringing. I pulled a couple things together and managed to build a, a good business, but it's hard to replicate. It's not typically every first entrepreneur straight out of university. The first company, they grow to 100 employees and gets acquired by TELUS. How did that feel? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, uh, it was fantastic, right? Like that happened very quickly. And it was a bootstrap company, so we didn't take any funding. But to be able to sell for double-digit millions when you're in your 20s, the cash was great. But the you know the more interesting part was just the fact that you kind of fall into building a company. So post-graduation, people could not believe. This is back when entrepreneurial stuff wasn't cool. They were so disappointed I was taking my shiny solder degree with my two friends and trying to build a business instead of going to get a real job, you know, at American Express or Kraft or something. I just thought, well, you know what? We were a student for four years. I'm sure if we spend our fifth year eating ramen and seeing if this works, it's no different. Let's try it. And, you know, it started to take off and one thing led to another. Was it your idea? No, it actually wasn't. It was my co-founder Scott's idea. So he, he was more nerdy than I was. And his dad worked at this company called Motorola. And so it was back in 94 and he had a summer job at Motorola and his job was to build a website for them. Like, ah, we need this thing called a website. There's probably like a hundred people on, on the internet at the time. <laughs> it was really early. And he, uh, he built that and he said, Hey, I think there's more people that are going to need these things. And I looked at it and went, huh, what is this website thing? That's cool. And then from there, uh, it started to take off. Now, looking back, is this a path you would recommend to your daughters? So I'm a huge fan of that, obviously. I think pretty much every professor, every counselor out there would guide you to say, graduate and go get a job at McKinsey or at a big company. It's fine. You get the resume value, but you also are just at the very bottom of the totem pole and you just do what nobody else wants to do. And so you get some exposure, but basically you're just grunting it at the bottom. Whereas if you start a company, you get exposure to everything. You have to figure out how to sell or like you don't have revenue. Then you have to figure out how to manage costs. And then you have to figure out if you're going to build these features or this right thing. How are you going to launch? Do you need partners? You just get this automatic exposure to every aspect of business in this fire hose way that I think a year of doing that matured yourself mentally on the business front, the equivalent of probably five years of being in the doldrums at the bottom of the ladder of a big company of a cog in the wheel. So one, the business card matters. And it's nice to be able to say that you work for some big company and your parents are happy. And the other, you accelerate your learning across all aspects of business in a way that's unreplicable inside of a big company. So I'm a huge fan of saying, look, you don't need a big income. You can live really cheaply. You're still living with roommates and you're eating craft dinner just 
keep going and try something. And if it doesn't work in a year, then go get your big person job. Today, actually, I read a post about Amazon's biggest failure, the Fire Phone, $170 million in losses. And Bezos' reaction, well, he said, as a company grows, everything needs to scale, including the size of your failed experiments. Tell me an example in your career when the stakes were the highest and you took a risk that failed. Hmm. At Vision Critical, we had the opportunity to be, I think, a market leader. And we made some strategic mistakes. And the company... I uh, did well. Like when I started, I wasn't a founder there. I was an early employee and was president there. Uh, over seven years, we went from zero to, I left it when it was about 500 employees, close to 100 million in revenue. Great business, great success. Its value is maybe in the hundreds of millions. The problem was the biggest competitor that started off smaller sold for $8 billion. They came and passed us and we just made some mistakes there. And so I think... We made some strategic mistakes around um, a services business combined with product instead of focusing exclusively on product, even though it would have been painful to do from a, from a funding standpoint. Um, we made some technology bets that were wrong. You know, and directionally, I think, I think culturally, we didn't have the right business framework and mindset to attack and win this survey market. That's for sure my biggest regret and something I used when I was looking at the funding for Clue. Look, I built a successful company along with all these great people in Canada, but our biggest competitor that started off tiny and we watched them grow and end up winning the market at $8 billion. That's a mistake. That's a big mistake. What was your role in all of those decisions? So my role uh, was more on the product side. We made a product bet, I think, that was wrong. But, um, you know, when you're not the CEO of the company, you really can't dictate uh, the strategy. And so when the strategy tends to lean towards services, not to product, you're kind of hampered from being able to execute the way that you think should be the right way to execute. My role was, I'd say, in the product failure of not being able to move and build fast enough a, a, a competing product that was better than what our competitor was doing. But culturally in the business, it was very hard to get alignment around really putting all engines and all horses behind that product piece. When you've got um, somebody that says, ah, who cares about product? Let's just get another services contract. People would think from the outside would think that you're at your the peak of your career, president of a 500 person company at Vision Critical. And then you took a sabbatical. You bought four around the world plane tickets and traveled through 13 countries with your wife and daughters. So it, is that kind of what motivated you to take a break? Um, or tell me why, what motivated you to take a break and why it was meaningful for you? Yeah, so it's an interesting point. So I think you, you articulated it well. Like, so I, I just turned forty, and I was sitting president of one of the hottest tech companies in Canada, corner office with an executive assistant, getting paid extremely well. You know, having grown it from an eight-person startup to five hundred people, hundreds of big brands around the world using your software. Forty is no magic number, but it's it's a it's a point. It's a birthday in which you look forward and you look backward, and you kind of look at what you've accomplished, and you kind of look at what you have yet to accomplish in your life, and you ask yourself: If you stay put, are you going to be accomplishing the things that you want to accomplish? And if the answer to that is no, 
that's when you have to accept the discomfort of it all and go. And so, yeah, it was a, it was difficult to walk in and resign. Thankfully, the company did say, well, we'll position as a sabbatical and you go for a year and decide what you want to do. And I knew that I wasn't going to go back. I wanted to start a company again eventually. I wanted to be in control of the destiny of the vision and not be encumbered by having to be an articulate um, communicator or politician to find and convince folks of it. So I really knew that ultimately I wanted to do that. Yeah, that was an interesting moment to give up a lot of money, basically go off grid to reset for a year. I had missed a lot of bed tuck-ins with my daughters and building a business took a lot of effort. So the way to reconnect with my family was to buy four around-the-world plane tickets, pulled my kids out of school. My wife quit her job and experienced life in the world. In the process, I came back with 17 different business ideas that uh, I thought might be interesting. Came back and spent the next year trying to figure out if any of them were any good and looking for a co-founder I could start it with. Oh, wow. So many questions. So the 17 different business ideas, was it inspired by everything you saw around you in the different countries and cultures or was it just because you have more time to think yeah it was both it was both like they were small ideas like i was super frustrated going from multiple countries to well, one country to another and not knowing like do you tip and w- w- do you tip enough like what, what's a cheapskate tip versus a big spender tip like australia doesn't tip you know in the u.s you got to tip a lot certain parts of europe you don't So I literally just wanted a simple app that said, you know, tell me what to tip (laughs) on a cheapskate to big spender kind of scale and on a per country basis. And, you know, so that was a simple idea born out of pain that I had traveling country to country. Other ideas were much bigger around, you know, Clue, for instance, competitive intelligence or churn was another one for SaaS companies. How do you um, anticipate what clients might be leaving you in the future? So there's a whole range of different ideas, some that were, yeah, based on just let me rethink about my time in the business world and what were gaps that were there that I never got to. And others were direct examples of my personal pain and what I was encountering. Another one was like, I went on safari in Africa and I was I was really upset that I, I could only have a book. There was only a book of like animal stuff and they had like all the Latin names and they were super geeky about it. And I literally just, I wanted to go, what does that animal eat and what eats that animal? Like, give me some cool facts about it and let me look at it on my phone. And then I want to just, you know, say that I've seen it and have like a sighting map and none of that existed. So I actually came back and that was the first thing I did. Got into mobile and found a mobile dev and we built an African safari app called African Safari Tracker that I still make much money on every day. Oh, um, wow. But uh, yeah, that was that was the idea. If you go on safari, I got the app for you. Okay, a little self-promotion there. <laughs> I hope that listeners are all taking notes of all the ideas that you didn't actually pursue. <laughs> yeah, well, there's lots of them. Ideas, actually, that's another interesting angle. Ideas are a dime a dozen. You're going to have tons of them. And I would never, ever sit and protect your idea. I would talk to as many sharp people as possible about your idea to figure out if it's stupid so you don't waste any time on it or if it's great that you can get into it. Interesting thing that you learn in life is everybody has their ideas and everybody thinks they've got their own idea that's better than somebody else's idea. Pretty much no matter what you share with folks, you know, it's about execution that's going to make the difference. Most people are busy thinking of their own ideas or executing something else. I'm a big advocate of whatever idea you've got, sit down from across from somebody and do at least a hundred smart person meetings where you ask for the real cold, hard feedback on your idea, figure out if you should continue to invest in it or not waste time and move on to something else. 
Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point. I definitely believe in learning and failing publicly because, like you said, you're able to get a lot of the feedback. And I think failure is kind of a badge of honor now. I was very willing to put up one of my failures on my LinkedIn profile. It's a company called Baizu. I was did it with a couple Harvard MBAs. We were down in San Francisco. We were trying to pitch for $20 million on the back of a PowerPoint. It's quite an experience, but it totally failed. It was like, you know, it's a crazy idea. It was group buying on the before the social web. We had an algorithm that matched all that. Really, you know, kind of intellectually smart idea, but you know, so many logistics that we hadn't thought through. Total failure. But I put that up on my LinkedIn just to say I learned a ton through that. I learned the value of timing. Don't launch an idea too early. Like you needed the social graph. And Groupon came along and did it well differently and crushed it. Was there any point where that felt embarrassing to you because you already succeeded? So you already had a badge of honor as a successful entrepreneur with your first startup and then you failed. Was there a hesitation before you posted? Definitely. Ego plays a role for everybody. You know, when you have one success and everybody thinks you're great because of that one success, even though you know that a lot of luck played in the role. When you go do your next thing, there's a part of you that's like, oh no, what if I fail? Then they'll know I was a one-time wonder and I just got lucky and I want them to believe it was me. And I was even hesitant to kind of do it, like, you know, because I'm like, oh, what if it fails? You know, once you get through that first failure, then it's a lot easier. Then you're like, you know what? I learned a ton. I'm still the same person. What's next? Back to your safari adventure. What was the point you got the idea for Clue? Were you sipping mojitos on the beach in Philippines, eating durian in Malaysia? <laughs> no. Clue came to me actually when I was at Vision Critical. We were busy trying to build a category around these insight communities, kind of big online focus groups. In creating a category, you have a number of competitors that start to pop up. When you're pitching a prospect and the prospect starts to tell you about your competitors and gives you information that you didn't know and actually is more educated than your own salespeople on what those competitors are doing, you've got a problem. And so I really wanted to solve that by understanding everything my competitors were doing and make sure that my salespeople weren't caught off guard. And then I looked around and there was nothing there. And so I said, oh, I'll make a note of that and see if the timing is right. Knowing from my Baizu experience that you've got to figure out the timing, I uh, you know, started to look at the trends and said, I think that was the interesting time to pull that off the shelf. There's a lot more fingerprints about competitors now. There's natural language processing from a machine learning standpoint to crunch some of that information down, curate it into something of value. And uh, there's increasing competition. Um, disruptions happening faster. So I looked at it and said, yeah, I think the time is now to kind of do that idea. That's a, that's a critical, critical thing. Make sure you look at the, uh, the broad trends and figure out if now is the time for your idea. Everybody knew that YouTube or a YouTube was going to succeed. Everyone knew that video would be on the internet. But when? When was it going to be winner? You needed broadband to be a certain amount of value. Um, you know, there needed to be a certain penetration of broadband, a certain speed for it to actually work. And then you needed phones to be able to record stuff and shove it up to the cloud. Those two things start to happen and boom, there's a winner on video. But everyone knew video was going to happen on the internet. Just when. So speaking of these trends, people describe you as an innovator and innovators certainly live in the future and build what's missing. And this is, is interesting you bring up Peter Thiel. His favorite interview question is, what important truth 
do very few people agree with you on? Yeah, I've thought about this question a lot. I think it's an interesting one. I come back to my belief that there is always that loose brick in the wall. And so my important truth is, if you keep looking, you're going to find something. And then the question is, is that finding something of value for you or is the timing to do it now or is the timing later? You know, the truth that I know is the resilience of the search is as important as the resilience of the execution. You want to keep looking and then when you find, you want to keep assessing and and then execute and jump into it. And I see it kind of relating to what you're building now with Clue. You saw the problem, you didn't execute it right away, but it was kind of brewing inside you for a while. Yeah, it is that. For sure, Clue is that. Maybe another angle on it is always be on the edge of discomfort. Being uncomfortable is a good thing at a level. I find the minute I've gotten comfortable in life is the minute I know I need to change things up. And if you feel like you're kind of rolling through on a regular life basis, then are you really living? My view is uh, life's pretty short. You got to try and take a couple shots. You can recover from some of the bad ones. So always kind of push yourself. If you feel too comfortable, find a, a, something that's less comfortable in your life, whether it's a full job approach or a new hobby or something creates that push, that edge, that discomfort, something that scares or challenges you, lean into it. I know you've spent tons of time over countless cups of coffee to advise entrepreneurs. I wonder what's the role of mentors throughout your entrepreneur journey? What I learned late in life is you just got to ask. You just got to ask people. So like you did for this podcast, you know, you probably weren't sure I'd say yes. And you just asked and, you know, so great. And it happens. I find people are afraid to ask. And so they think that they're, you know, they're not in the same league or there's some, you know, reason why they're not good enough. And you just got to ask. I learned that on my round the world trip too. Not only did I ask uh, about places I could stay at, I asked for a discount on everything. And and I kind of asked twice before I'd give up. Mentors are the people you go to and you start by aiming high and asking if somebody would mentor you and you need to be very clear about what tax that means on their time. Um, but a lot of people that have been there, done that, are looking for themselves in somebody younger. Did you do that? No, no, I didn't. I was too scared. I was I was too afraid. It was kind of silly. I, I didn't realize that I could. That's kind of my point. I had people, my father-in-law, actually, I would consider one of my biggest mentors. He uh, is also an entrepreneur. And I would go to him for repeated advice. But broadly, it was like I was too scared in my early days, in my 20s to do it. And that's my big regret. I should have just aimed really high. I did have one guy that I did speak with after we had won this Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award and for the young entrepreneurs. And he had won for the tech entrepreneurs. And he ran this company called Electronic Arts. So I went up to him afterwards and said, look, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I've, we've got you know, at the time, like a 70 person company and I, I could use some help. He's like, I'm happy to chat with you. We started up kind of a, a, a mentoring relationship. He ultimately hired me at EA, but it was, uh, that was the only one that I really did. I, I regret not doing it much earlier in life. I just have three questions to wrap up. First is what is one piece of advice, book or resource that every company builder should be aware of? Accept ambiguity, own it and make things happen for yourself. Don't expect a structured plan to be put in front of you. Just take the ambiguity, own it and make things happen. I expect you to have a very good answer for the next question. Who in the Vancouver entrepreneur community do you admire and recommend for the podcast? 
Uh, how about Elon Musk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me just dial, dial him up on my cell phone. <laughs> what I love about that question is it's a wonderful you know, approach to try and get your next podcast guest. But you started by saying, you know, who would be a great guest? Yeah, I think Elon would be a fantastic guest. Um, there's lots of great entrepreneurs in certainly the Vancouver ecosystem. I think Jack Newton at Clio runs a great shop there. Um, my friend Brian Scudamore started this company, 1-800-GOT-JUNK. He does a fantastic job of um, uh, an offline service uh, that he has scaled incredibly well. Either of those two guys would be great. Great. I'll be looking for the intro <laughs> after this podcast. So now there's nothing left to do but to roll out the rep carpet for you, Jason. Let our listeners know where they can find you and how an aspiring Clue member might be able to join your rocket ship. Uh, then there's no big pitch on the Clue front other than uh, Clue.com. Uh, Clue with a K is the URL. Uh, Clue.com slash jobs is uh, jobs that we're looking at. But frankly, you know, even jobs that we haven't posted, we're always looking for talented folks to join the company. You know, I think in an early stage company, you're either down the marketing path, the sales path, the product path, building it, um, or the um, customer success path. And then there's a little bit in the finance and operations, but um, we'd love to talk to anybody that is uh, building, selling, or servicing uh, products, either existing or aspiring to. And my email is jason at clue.com. You're welcome to email me directly. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. If you want to listen to previous episodes, subscribe to our newsletter, or give me feedback, you can go to behindthestand.com. I can't wait to hear from you. I'm Alice, and you're listening to Behind the Stand Podcast.